We are going to read from God's Word and from Matthew 17, picking up where we left off last week. We're going to start at sentence 22. We believe that the Bible is God's Word, and as it's read and taught faithfully and accurately, it's God speaking to us. And we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 17, sentence 22, as Jesus teaches on who he is and why he's here. Matthew 17, 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When he said from others, he said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, great to be with you. My name's Jacob. If we haven't um, met before, and just once again, it's great to be together and to be able to sing. I thought singing just sounded so great and so encouraging just before as well. And looking forward to getting into a bunch of carols next week. So look forward to that and like just said, be inviting people along. It will be a great time to round out the year and to celebrate together. What we're going to be doing now is just walking through that passage that Jez just read for us, um, uh, pausing along the way to see what we can learn from these words of Scripture about uh, the God who made us, about ourselves, and how it is we relate to Him. So just before we get into that, I'm just going to pray that God would be with us during this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word um, that we, we can actually learn about you and more than that, we can actually hear from you through these words that have been recorded for us. We just ask that right now as we delve into this and as we reflect on this and try to understand um, what is in this for us, that you would be revealing yourself to us, particularly if maybe some of us are here um, searching for you, looking for answers, trying to learn about who you are, and for others of us who are just needing to be reminded of the good news that we have in Jesus. We just pray you'd be with us in this time. Amen. Now, the other day I was having a chat with a couple of people about, um, I guess, which period of your life is kind of overall just the best kind of time. What's the kind of best era, whether it's you know, your 20s when you're just kind of starting out as an adult, or whether it's your 30s when you're a little bit more established um, and life, life's a little bit less hectic, or whether it's even a bit later in life, in your 60s or your 70s, when just everything's settling down and hopefully you've got to a point where you're feeling quite content. Um, and there wasn't any great agreement about this. There was different opinions. And I guess the kind of overall thing was, look, every kind of point in your life has got pros and cons. But there was one period that no one put forward as the best time to be alive, and that was adolescence. So 12 to 15 years old, I reckon, just hands down, has got to be the most awkward, uncomfortable age. When I look back at myself as a 14-year-old boy, I'm just filled with the utmost pity upon myself as the, for the confused mess that I was. Apart from um, the, just, you know, just the biological stuff that's going on in that time, which is just you know, enough for anyone to contend with, on top of that, the biggest thing that, uh, that you know, makes this particular age just so uncomfortable is it seems that at that point in time, every single teenager is at the same time trying to figure out their identity. Insu insecurity seems to hit everyone at once over those couple of years. 
when all of a sudden you need to answer the questions, who am I, what is my place in the world, and why do I matter? Tim Keller, who's a, a Christian author, says that our identity is fundamentally made up of two things, our sense of self and our sense of worth. So you know, our sense of self is who we are at our core, just who are we deep down, and our sense of worth. What is it, if anything, about us that makes us worthwhile and valuable and significant? And I think in those early teenage years, more than any other stage in life, those are the things that are up for grabs. When you're in primary school, th those questions don't seem to matter. You're a kid, you're there to have fun, it's kind of easygoing. But you hit a certain age where that's not enough. You need some further classification about who you are to give you an identity that is strong enough. And so you see kids in the teenage years just searching for what that might be, whether that's going down the road of being the music kid or a gamer or finding identity in sport or some other misguided path. Uh, when I was that age, uh, the thing that uh, I think a lot of people look to as the answer for this question of who am I was the emo movement. Now, I didn't go as far down that road as some. I didn't go the full makeup and black hair. But I definitely got into Simple Plan, Sum 41. Uh, I had two Fallout Boys CDs back in the early 2000s. And just generally went around feeling a bit sorry for myself as though that kind of made me something. <laughs> Now, fortunately, that wasn't the end of the road, as, and, and it wasn't for, for many people. I don't know where all the emos are now, but I hope they're somewhere happy. Um, <laughs> but it just shows that the sense of identity is important, because knowing who you are and having an answer to that question of who am I, why do I matter, um, can make you feel secure. When you've got an answer to those questions, you can feel like you know where you belong. Um, when you feel deeply, though, that you're not sure who you are or where you belong or what makes you valuable, you feel insecure, self-conscious, and unsure. And hopefully, you know, as adults, uh, we are a little bit more at least secure in our identities than maybe we were in those tumultuous years, but we still yearn to have an identity that is secure. I want to put something forward to you guys today from this passage that Jez just read, which is that Jesus was the most secure in his identity of anyone who has ever lived. The thing that made Jesus a person who, in his time, for those who met him, made him an attractive person, a person who was confident and loving and patient and outward-looking and unshakable in the face of criticism and attack, was that he knew deep down who he was and why he had value. That he knows something about himself that fills him with a deep sense of confidence and security. And that the good news for us is that he actually invites us to share in this identity, particularly his identity as a child of God. So that's where we're going to be getting to today. But the, the way we kind of get into that is through this strange story about taxes and a fish that has a coin in it that Jez just read. So you might be thinking, well, that the story and what I've just said don't really fully seem to go together. So that's where we're going to be getting to today. So we're going to work through this together. If you've got a Bible open, we're staying in Matthew chapter 17 for the whole time, so you can have that open in front of you. And we'll start looking at verse 22, which says, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life, and his disciples were filled with grief. So if you've been with us so far, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we've hit a turning point a couple of chapters ago, where Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles and this kind of thing, but we really get into the kind of central point of who he is and why he's here. A couple of chapters ago, he asked his followers, the disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. But then Jesus got specific and said, no, what about you, Peter, one of his disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is the right one, and he says, the Messiah. 
But immediately after Peter gets this right and calls Jesus the Messiah, Jesus explains that what he's going to do is to go into Jerusalem, be arrested and then killed, uh, and then buried and then to rise again. And Peter struggles with this explanation because this is almost in complete contrast to what he expected the Messiah, God's chosen king, was going to do. So they, they're wrestling with this. They can't get it through the head. So again and again and again, Jesus is having to remind them, as he's just done here, that this is what's going to happen. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again. And they're filled with grief because this does not fit the picture they have. But this reminder's here because it's going to help us make sense of what happens next. It then says, following this, um, uh, following this reminder, Jesus is uh, ha- moving forward and he has another interaction with a portion of the religious leaders. Now, again, if you've been with us again and again and again, some representative of the religious system will come to Jesus and his followers and kind of try to initiate some form of conflict. So in verse 24, it says, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So Capernaum is this little fishing village kind of in northern Israel, middle of nowhere. Um, but despite that, they're kind of off the beaten track in a sense. These representatives of the temple who go around collecting this tax ask Peter a question, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now the temple was the center of uh, Jewish culture and of the national identity and their religion. It was a massive space that was like in the center of Jerusalem. It had grounds to be maintained. It had a complex system of staff and, and, and kind of worship leaders and people that would do sacrifices, presumably people that would clean up the mess after the sacrifices. So to keep this thing running, there was a, you know, a lot of upkeep, a lot of maintenance. And so there was a tax that was put in place on the Jewish people to fund this temple as a place where people could be sure they could go and meet with God. But also at this point in time, this temple system had become somewhat corrupt. Jesus has been very vocal that the Jewish religious system and the temple and the religious leaders are not doing what they should be doing. They aren't making it easy for people to know God and worship him the way that he wants to be worshipped. They're instead loading up people with rules, creating barriers, making it hard for people to know God, which is the complete opposite of what God wants and what he wants his temple to be. So when these tax collectors for the temple tax come to Peter and ask him this question, it is a loaded question. It's the same thing is going on here as other times when Jesus and his followers are confronted with a question. It's designed to put them in a bind. It's kind of like asking someone, have you stopped mistreating your dog? Because no matter how you answer that question, it's kind of self-incriminating. You either say yes, which makes out like you have been mistreating your dog, or you say no, in which case it sounds like you're still mistreating your dog. It's a kind of a lose-lose question. It's the kind of question that reporters just like love asking politicians whenever you see a press conference. No matter what it's on, they'll just frame these questions that you can't win. So they'll say things like, do you believe that climate change is real and therefore everyone who works in fossil fuel industry should be out of their jobs? And no matter what you say, if you say yes, you upset the people who work in fossil fuels. If you say no, you upset the climate change people. You can't win. And so what you get, obviously, as we've all seen, is politicians doing these kind of weaselly maneuvers to avoid the question altogether. So that's the style of question that's being asked. It might seem like a straightforward one, but if you think about it, there's only really two ways Peter can answer. He can say yes, which would then communicate that Jesus sees this temple tax and this system as an authority that he has to submit to, kind of validating this system that he's up till now been kind of speaking of as broken and corrupt. Or 
He has to say no, which kind of makes Jesus out to be divisive, rebellious, uh, and a non-faithful Jewish person. So it's a lose-lose question that is, that is put to them. It's a question that needs some tact and some nuance, but they've come to the wrong person for nuance. They've come to Peter, who's the king of talking first, thinking later, uh, loves putting his foot in his mouth, who just says, yes, he does. Now, it might be as simple as that. It might be as simple as Jesus does pay the temple tax, and Peter knows it, so he's just a, you know, putting it out there. Or maybe Peter was avoiding conflict, um, which he's not you know, above doing. He does that um, a few times through this gospel. He just tries to avoid the hard situation. But either way, Jesus thinks that Peter's answer needs a bit of extra work. And so we see this. It says, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Now, whenever Jesus asks a question in the form of an analogy or a, a parable, this kind of you know, symbolic language, he's signaling that we need to slow down and, and think about what he's saying. Because he's not saying just directly what he means, because that might just be slipped through and forgotten. He's trying to put an image in your head that will stick there so you can actually really wrestle with what he's, what he's putting forward. What he's saying is, is significant. So let's just slow down through this and, and think about it. Jesus is saying kings collect taxes. That's kind of straightforward. You've got to get taxes to pay for the army, pay for the roads, you know, pay for the, the castle. I don't know. Um, and so who do kings get their, their taxes from? Well, they're not going around on you know, their, their sons and their daughters knocking on the door saying, guys, come on, you know, give us the money so we can make stuff better. They're going to other people. They're going to the peasants, the landowners, just other people. And if you're just an ordinary citizen and the king comes to you and says, pay your tax, and you say no, you're going to get your land confiscated or your head chopped off or whatever the king is going to do for you. But if you're the prince or the princess in the kingdom, you're probably sitting comfy somewhere and you're not worried about the tax man coming for you because you don't have that same obligation that others have. You're in a different league, a different category by nature of your childhood. And so Peter understands this because it's pretty straightforward. So he says, well, yeah, from others. And then Jesus points out the obvious conclusion then, which is just to simply say, and the children are exempt. Another translation has here, the children are free. So why is Jesus putting this little story or this little question forward to Peter? We just got to do a little bit of work. It's not too tricky to figure it out. Who's the king of the temple? If the temple is this kind of center of this, you know, the Jewish nation and the empire, well, you know, who's the temple for? It's for God. God is the, the king in this story. The temple exists as a place of worship for him. He owns it. It's maintained for his benefit. It's, it really, it's like his home. And so then, therefore, the Jewish people, they're the citizens who you know, rightly pay the tax to keep this thing running. So then who is Jesus saying that he is in the analogy? Well, obviously, he's saying he's the child. Now, if you've been around church or familiar with Christianity, this isn't going to seem that groundbreaking for you. Like, well, yeah, Jesus is the child. Easy. But... We might kind of be familiar with this, but there's, n there's actually something really radical about what Jesus is putting forward here. Particularly because we would often think of God maybe as a father or as us as God's children, but that is not how your, your, your typical Israelite person would have thought of God. They wouldn't call God Father, which is the main way that Jesus describes his relationship with God. They wouldn't suppose to think that they have some special, unique relationship with God. 
So what we see here is that Jesus is revealing his core belief about his identity. That he sees himself as God's son. And therefore, he's free from having to relate to God as some... Okay, there we go. That is going to be so distracting, isn't it? Um, leave him be. Um, there we go. I've lost what I was saying. So Jesus sees himself as God's son, um, doesn't have to relate to God as a distant king, but has the benefits of being his child. So it is the case that, um, that, that, that children in a family do get treated differently. It, it comes with certain rights and certain, certain benefits. So I, I see this play out in my family. My brother-in-law uh, owns a cafe, the, the one's doing the burgers next week, and it is one of our favourite places to go. But it is definitely my son River's favourite place to go. Because when he's there, he gets treated so well. Me and Sarah will go down, we'll sit down, we'll order ourselves coffees. And then just randomly throughout our time there to keep River busy, the chefs will bring him out a plate of fruit or some fries or a hash brown or some scrambled eggs. Or just one of the workers will bring him a baby chino or a juice that we haven't asked for, we haven't ordered it, we haven't paid for it. it he just can tuck in and he just kind of just feeds and gorges in this place all the time. But it's giving him a really distorted kind of picture of kind of what cafes were. When I was a kid, going to a cafe was a place where my parents would order themselves lunch and then they'd get out a, a glad wrapped peanut butter sandwich that they'd stashed <laughs> from home so they didn't want to pay anything for me because cafes cost money. You don't just kind of eat food for free. That's what we had to learn growing up. And my son's learning that, no, a cafe is a place you just sit and just food comes at you for nothing. Um, but, and the reason for that is that he's the nephew of the owner. And the owner can choose very freely to treat his kids or his nephew different to anyone else. That's just the benefit of family. So Jesus is putting forward this kind of known concept that family is treated different to say that God works with him differently to how he works with everyone else. Jesus is God's child, so he is free to go to the temple without paying a tax and have that access to God that no one else could have because he knows God intimately. And this extends no matter kind of what the, the parent-child relationship is. As Jesus is saying, even, even the people you think of as the most powerful, influential people who others would fear have a different relationship with their kid. It's almost like a sermon cliche. I've heard this in other sermons. I didn't come up with it. But look at this image here. It um, will come up on the screen of JFK. The, at the time, President of the United States, most powerful man in the world, um, in the Oval Office, which is this symbolic space of power. It's the kind of place that if you were there, you'd just be filled with trepidation and nervousness. You'd be aware of everything you said, how you were standing, what your arms are doing. You'd just be nervous to be in that space with the president. And the thing that's kind of just famous and great about this picture is you can see his, his son under the desk, just playing, maybe you can't because of the keyboard and I'm in the way, but if you can see it, his son is just playing under the desk, completely free, almost oblivious to the reality that his dad is the president. He can do something that no one else could do in that space because he is the son. So Jesus is saying, and the key point of this passage, despite the fact it's all about taxes, is that his identity as God's child frees him from relating to God through taxes or formalities, but relaxes him to treat him as his father. Now you could almost leave the story there and you'd kind of have enough, I think, to go away and chew on just about Jesus' identity. But it ends with just a few more kind of really weird lines, which we'll read now. Verse 27 says, following this explanation, But so that we may not cause offense, he's talking to Peter, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch 
open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, there's a few weird things going on here. The first weird thing is, if you've been with us, like since when is Jesus worried about causing offense? Jesus causes offense left, right, and center, particularly with people he thinks are in the wrong. And, you know, the temple system would be one of those people. Um, but what we just see here is just this little nice bit of Jesus that even though he, he's free to, to say and do what he wants, there are times when he makes a decision to kind of forego some right, forego some freedom that he has for the sake of just not unnecessarily putting others off. That's just kind of a nice little just, you know, picture of just the way that Jesus thinks about things. Because the people of Capernaum might not have understood what Jesus was doing if he refused to pay the tax. So he's willing to go along with it. But the second weird thing, and obviously it's much weirder than that, is this thing about the fish. Um, and the thing that's weird about you know, telling Peter to go and get a coin out of a fish is not just that it's miraculous, because Jesus has done other miraculous things. He's healed the sick, he's cast out demons, he's calmed storms, that kind of thing. But there's something interesting about this one. Um, it might not be the only one of these, but it, for me, I'm trying to think of others. This, this miracle is not public. It's not something that everyone can see and then witness. It's just for Peter. And it's different to the other miracles he's done in that it's not like a relieving some great suffering or making this big impact. It's just this kind of weird little kind of side, side mission for Peter. So it's very strange. And, and you know, why, why, why not just pay the tax? They've probably got the money. Why not just kind of find the money in the ground and, and pay it that way? So I've just been pondering on this for a week. Why is this strange little inclusion in here? And I think that the benefit of this miracle is for Peter himself. There's something that I think you can just get as you, as you look into this story, that, that here's the thing. Look, Jesus has said that he doesn't have to pay the tax, that he is God's son. But if you think about it, what about Peter? Peter should still have to pay the tax, right? There's nothing special about Peter in the same way there is about Jesus. But if you look at what Jesus says throughout this story, in the analogy, Jesus doesn't say the child is free. He says the children are free. And here he doesn't say so that I don't cause offense. He says so that we don't cause offense. And he doesn't send Peter to get a two drachma coin, which covers the two drachma tax for one person. He sends him to get a four drachma coin to cover them both. What we're seeing in these lines is that Peter is getting to share in the identity of this exempt free child. Can you see what that's happening here? Because up until now, to, to meet with God, you needed to go to the temple. To go to the temple, you had to pay your tax. But Jesus is saying to Peter, you know what? I'm going to cover the cost for you. God is going to cover the cost for you. That from now on, you're not going to have to pay your way to relate to God. God will provide what you need for that. He'll provide you this coin and this crazy story about the fish. And then you can relate to God in the same way that I relate to him, which is as a child. Jesus is signifying here that this way of relating to God that he can experience is also open to others as well. And this is why, just before this story, Jesus has reminded the disciples of what he's going to do, that he's going to be handed over into the hands of men and to be killed. That ultimately, the way that Jesus would open the way to know God is through a price being provided, but that, that price wouldn't be a tax in the form of a coin, but it would be the price in the form of Jesus' blood being spilled out and being buried in a tomb. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here to Peter, his disciple, to understand that he can relate to God as a father too. 
that he is free not to, to come to God with taxes, but just with the identity of a son. So as we, as we walk away from this story about taxes and a fish, the, the question is, that we need to, to grapple with ourselves, is how does our identity shape how we relate to God? Do you approach God like he's a king extracting some tax from you, or do you approach him with the security of a child? Because the way you view your identity will result ultimately in your relationship with God being one that is secure and confident, or one that is insecure. Because if your identity doesn't come from what Jesus is offering as being, you know, first and foremost a child of God, it will come from somewhere else. If your core identity isn't defined vertically, it will be defined in some way horizontally, either kind of outwardly, as we look around to who others say that we are, what they think of us, what they say to us, what they say about us. For many of us, that might be the, the things that were spoken to us in our families of origin. As parents, they either called you maybe the good child or the well-behaved child, or maybe they called you the problem child, or a failure, or a disappointment, or not enough. Maybe you were lavish with praise for doing things right. It's built into your identity a need to succeed and excel, say that you were worth something when you were doing things right. Or if you were told that you would never did stuff right, maybe that's built into your identity that you could never really be wanted, you could never really be free. Or maybe our identity comes from within, because I think our culture is very, um, very strong on pushing back against, you're not who others say you are, you, you are who you say you are. You're who you find in yourself when you look deep within. And so we define ourselves by what we can accomplish, you know, we define ourselves by being a member of a family, having a family or having a career, or excelling in some domain or being creative or whatever it is. Um, or we, we find ourselves just by looking inward and introspecting and just thinking, well, who do we think we are when we look deep inside? But maybe when you look inside, you still find that you're someone who's lazy or angry or prone to addiction or some other thing. Jesus is offering a new place to find your identity. To see yourself not as others see you or as others talk about you or even how you might choose to define yourself or how you feel. But Jesus is offering you the ability to define yourself as God sees you. That you might have an identity that is not achieved but received. I think we often think about, you know, when we think about God, we think about kind of how we need to view him and what it looks like to view God rightly. But how often do you pause to reflect on, on how God sees you or how God thinks about you? C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, points this out. He's, he says this, this, this line that stuck with me this week. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Here's the thing, our hope of knowing God, of experiencing life and relationship with him, isn't based on anything that we do. It's not based on paying a tax. It's not based on living a certain way, living up to some standard. But it's also not forgetting the right ideas. It's not that we have to just kind of come up with the perfect picture of God in our minds and believe just right for God to accept us. That's not where our hope is found. Our hope is based on one thing and one thing alone, which is that God, through Jesus, would pay the price that we needed paid, that he would do what needed to be done to make us his children. 
and that because of what Jesus did in dying in our place, that he would view us as his children now. That is where our hope is found. And so if you are in any way seeking God, exploring questions of faith, this is an important thing to, to understand. Jesus is inviting you to relate to him like a child relates to their father. And that might be a really hard thing to start doing. It might take some real unlearning, particularly if, you, particularly if your view of God is that he is the, you know, some, some master of rules, some distant being, some grumpy, frowny guy in the sky. Jesus, though, is offering you an alternative, an identity and a sense of worth that you can just simply know as a gift. That he's saying, look, if you can just walk with me, be like me, understand me, you can, you can have that same security that I have, that same freedom. And Jesus is extending that invitation to us today. If you're a child, you're free. There is nothing more to pay. But for those of us who have heard this before and, and, and know this, um, I just want to just ma- maybe just pause to reflect and have us reflect on, do we actually know the freedom that comes with being a child of God? Paul Tripp um, says that we've got what he calls identity amnesia a lot of the time. Because even though we know who we are, we just forget who we are day by day. We go back to defining ourselves in other ways, or we go back to relating to God like he's just someone who wants us to do a bunch of things in order to get to him. But we should be a people who are confident and free. We should, in that deepest level, be the opposite of the insecure teenager who's just fretfully trying to figure out who they are and, and make something of themselves. Because we should know who we are. I'm not saying, though, if you, you, know, you do feel insecure or if you forget your identity that you've lost it. Because the beautiful thing is about being God's child is even if for a time you don't feel like you are, it doesn't change the fact that you are. So it, there's no guilt here. But that said, if we are God's children, we should just aspire to enjoy the confidence that comes with that. To be able to wake up each day and remind ourselves, okay, today I'm God's child in God's world. But as I go out today to work or for a walk or to the shops, wherever it might be, that there is not one place that I'll step foot in that isn't in some way mine by nature of the inheritance of my father who made it and owns it. That we can be confident because no matter what happens, no matter what might happen today, what people might think about me, how I might look, I might be silly, I might get up and give a, a sermon and people might in the car ride home talk about how I made mistakes or said something silly. No matter what happens, I'm God's child. That as I seek to parent well or work well or create something or solve a problem or knock through a to-do list, that whether or not any of these things happen in the way that I hope, um, in the big picture, are irrelevant. Because God knows me as his child. But as I go out and I seek to become more holy and, and cut sin out of my life, and become more like Jesus, just to know that that's not, is, that will not be the thing that makes me like Jesus in the end. The thing that makes me like Jesus is what he has done for me, that he has given me his family likeness. How good to know this. So I'm just going to pray now that as we go into this week, as we get ready for Christmas and everything, all the business as it comes over the next week, that we will just be able to rest secure in our identity as God's children. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word that, um, that we are offered at this just amazing grace of being able to treat you and relate to you as a father. 
because you chose to treat us as your children. That you show in this story that even though there might be some price to be paid, that you do not ask us to pay that price, that you provide it. You provide it miraculously. You provide it um, in a way that we couldn't do for ourselves. You provide it in your son, Jesus, the one who pays the price on our behalf. That we may not have any further price to pay. That we may not have to earn anything. That there is nothing we need to do this week to move ourselves back into your love and into your grace. We just need to know that you've done it. Help us experience that freedom. We know that many other voices may say other things to us about what we are worth or why we are worth what we are worth through performance or succeeding or success or just that we're any voices that maybe just tell us that we're not enough. We just pray that we would know and just find comfort in this reality that we are your children, you are our Father, and we are free. In Jesus' name, amen.